Let me pray for us before we get into our passage this morning. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we need you this morning to open our eyes to the truths of this passage. Uh, We need your help. We need your illumination. We need you to stir our affections for Christ so that we can abide in him. And we're asking this this morning in faith, knowing that you desire to do that work, that is who you are by nature, the one who communicates love, the love between the Father and the Son. And so we pray for, for that work to be done in this room as we're gathered together to worship this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, it's hard to think right now today about it still being fall, but technically it is fall all the way up until December 21st, so we'll probably only have three or four more snows through the fall season. But in early autumn, maybe it's even late summer, every year our family goes apple picking at a local orchard. It's just one of the things you do in the fall, right? And I don't know a lot about growing plants. I tend to destroy things that I try to plant and grow. But every time I go to an orchard, I am honestly just amazed when I see those apple trees and I think to myself, I mean, it's amazing to look at that apple and think, this popped out of this tree because of water and light. And this tree took water and light, and turned it into this unbelievable piece of fruit here. And every time I walk through an orchard, I am just shocked by that. It's pretty wild if you stop and think about the reality of fruit growing on a tree. And in an apple orchard, like the ones that we go to, there are all sorts of varieties of apples. They all have different colors and slightly different tastes to them. And it's, it's just shocking to look at that. And so in one sense, it is amazing, right? Like I, you look at that, you start to think about it, you process through it, and it's, it should leave us in awe over the creativity of God, the power of God, the beauty of our creator God. And then at the same time, as amazing as it is, there is something very natural and to be expected about those apples coming off of those trees. The people that own and run the orchards, they know exactly what's going to happen. They know what to do. They know how to tend to those trees. They know how to position them, to plant them, all of that. They understand that if they do certain things, apples will be the end result. And God, in his grace, has designed it that way. He's made it to be the most natural thing in the world for those trees to produce apples. It's what they do. And so you've got both amazement and shock at what happens here, and then you've got at the same time this sort of, yeah, but this is, this is what is supposed to take place. Now, take that apple orchard metaphor, and it's almost the exact same thing as what Jesus is describing here in John chapter 15 with the vine and the branches and the fruit that comes from the vine. We started last week in John 15, verses 1 through 8, talking about this metaphor of the vine and its branches and the relationship that we are supposed to have with the Lord Jesus Christ. Listen to verse 5. Let me remind you of this again. Verse 5. I am the vine, Christ says. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit 
for apart from me you can do nothing. To abide in him, to stay connected to him, to remain in him, should be, for a follower of Christ, the automatic posture that we carry throughout our lives. We should should have that as a normal reality for us, that we are staying connected to him and abiding in him, and the result of that should produce fruit. But it's not that easy, is it, in our lives? I mean, it seems so natural and so normal the way Jesus describes it for this to take place, but it's not quite that easy with me And I'm confident it's not quite that easy with you as either. We battle our sinful nature. We get up every day and all of these thoughts rush into our heads. It makes it difficult to abide in Christ. We harbor doubts about his love for us, about our relationship with him. Sometimes we live with a constant sense of guilt and shame over our sin. And guilt and shame keeps us connected to our sin. We view God sometimes as frustrated with us and distant from us. And it's really hard to abide in a God who is disconnected and is some deity out in space somewhere and who has no real impact on my life today, if that's how we view him. It's difficult to abide in someone like that. And so in verses 1 through 8, Jesus tells his disciples, look, this is the nature of the relationship that I have with you now. This is the the posture that you should have. The necessity for you moving forward is to abide in me. And now in verses 9 through 16 today, you can see the title on the screen. This is how that happens in our lives. This is the more practical, functional pathway to remaining in Christ and to abiding in him so that we bear fruit to the glory of God. Now, in verses 9 through 17, admittedly, you won't see the language of the vine and the branches. It's not here, but this follows right on the heels of verses 1 through 8. And the metaphor and the the idea of abiding, which you will see in this, carries through into this passage. And that, that sort of close, connected relationship is very much in the background of everything we're talking about in verses 9 through 17. So this passage is working out what we saw last week in the nature of our relationship with Christ. So here's what we're going to see today. Four practices to help us abide in the vine. This is the how-to. Four practices to help us abide in the vine. And the first one of these is to settle into Christ's love. Look at verse 9 with me. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. You can see the command at the end of this verse. Stay, remain, abide in my love. So Jesus says here, the first practice, to Do what verse 4 of this chapter says, abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. The first way to abide, the very practical, functional thing you can do is to settle into specifically his love for you. That's the first practice. Now, it's often hard for us to get a grasp on the love that Christ has for us. And so he tells us, look, in order to understand the love that I have for you, 
I want you to go back and to think about the relationship that I have with my father. Look again at verse 9. As the father has loved me, so have I loved you. So to go down the road of starting to understand Christ's love for us, you need to take a step back and you need to look at the relationship between the father and the son, the love that the father has for his son. Now think about that love just for a moment here. The love that the father has for the son is a love that has always existed. It has no beginning. Before anything else was there at all, there was a father loving a son through the spirit. John 17, 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. This is a love between father and son that delights and shares all good things. It is a love that has open and pure communication. John 5.20, for the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing. So when you start to think about the Father's love for the Son and vice versa, think about it this way as it relates to our Christ's love for us. Christ's love for us is like a cascading waterfall that begins in eternity past with the Father and the Son through the Spirit. And that love, that very same affection and joy and relationship overflows into Christ's love for us. It's a love that cannot fail, that does not fail, that always seeks what is best. It's a perfect love. A complete love. Listen, you and I don't understand. We haven't even begun to come to grips with this book, the Bible, until we start here. We start with the reality of this love. This is the most important reality in the entire universe. This is it. This is foundational. Everything started with this. A father loving a son. I read this this week. thought it was very helpful. But just as there is no vanilla-flavored generic God, I don't know what you think about when you think about God, but he, he has specific qualities to him. So also there is no blank relationship. Relationships can be distant or intimate, explosive or cool, complex or formulaic. What sort of relationship then characterizes the persons of the Trinity? If we cast an eye over the verses in the Bible referring to God's activity before creation, we see that intra-Trinitarian relations are characterized consistently, not by discord, competition, or rivalry, much less by apathy or a functional focus on just getting things done, but by love. This means that we live in a universe in which love, as the Bible understands it, is fundamental and original. This is where it starts. And I think, in my own life this is true, and so I'm going to project that out onto you because I think it's probably true for you too. I think one of the greatest challenges that Christians face and that you will face this week is to really believe deep down in your gut, 
to the point where it begins controlling your life and becomes the greatest reality in your life that God loves you. That's it. We, we doubt this, don't we? We get up and we're unsure of it in the morning. We don't quite believe it. I mean, it's just too good to be true, isn't it? That this original relationship of father loving a son through the Spirit has been extended to you and to me. But if you cut into your Bible this morning, it would bleed out no matter where you cut Christ's love for you. It's everywhere. It's all over the place. And every time you turn to one of those passages and read it, and even have just the smallest bit of faith that it is real, it is life-giving and joy-producing. That's the focus of the whole story. The story of the Bible is the story of a God redeeming a people who have strayed from him because he loves them. 1 John 4. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And here's the thing this morning. Let's bring this back to abiding in him and and fruit, okay? You can't really abide in Christ and bear good fruit if you don't accept this reality. If you don't start here, if you don't live in light of who God is, in his original character before the foundation of the world, a father loving a son through the Spirit, if that doesn't control how you think about God, and then you understand that that love is overflowing through Christ and through his work to you in your life today, and that that actually really is Christ's disposition toward you, he's not grumpy, he's not frustrated, he's not angry with you. He loves you enough to come and to die for you to redeem you, to win you back, to rescue you, and to bring you into what is the absolute best thing for you, which is a relationship with him. A relationship of love and of holiness and of mercy and justice and purity. I love this, and I know it's small, but just listen as I read it to you. At the end of the day, If we wish to enter into experiencing genuine communion with God and consent to being transformed, we too will need to set down our armament and trust that the triune God regards us not with indifference or calculation as if we were a servant, slave, or thing. Rather, against all odds, We are to him one who is beloved. This is the leap of faith we all must take. This is the point at which we blindly jump across the yawning chasm of our fears. Our fears of being found naked, inadequate, and even disgusting. In trust that God will have us. In trust that when we yield to God, we might come to experience the joy of knowing and being known. 
It is easy to imagine being loved after we have proven ourselves to exhibit excellence and purity. But to be loved in all our states of disgrace, it is the stuff of tears that burns on the edges of our eyes. What's the connection here between abiding in Christ's love and bearing fruit? Well, if this quote is true, if this whole thing that I'm talking about this morning is true, then to settle into his love, to really rest there, to find yourself living in faith that this is true of you this morning, that's what changes your heart. Nothing changes the heart like the reality of being loved and having God's affection toward you. Nothing softens your heart like that. And so to live in that reality is what fundamentally changes you. It's what puts sin to death. It's what motivates self-sacrifice. To know that you are loved by Christ is what the Spirit aims to convince you of. That's his work. It's what he does. He sheds the love of God abroad in our hearts. He wants to convince you that you are actually loved, and that's when he does that work that the fruit of the Spirit begins to grow. That you begin to put on those virtues of love and joy and peace and gentleness and goodness and faith. And so I think it's worth you asking, as I ask myself this, what keeps me from the consistent awareness of God's love for me? What is it? What gets in there and sort of shoves God's love for me out of the way and takes center stage in my heart? Guilt? Shame? A pet sin? Anxiety? Fear? If any of those are true of you and you find that any of those are consistently pushing God's love for you out of the way and making it seem like it can't really be true, bring those things to the cross and understand the cross as the expression of God's love for you and understand that through the cross you are loved and you are forgiven and that forgiveness and love will change you from the inside out and then abide in his love. Realize it's true and settle into his love for you. And when that happens, it will not leave you unchanged. Then you will move on to this second practice. Settle into his love and obey his commands. Look at verse 10 with me. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So once again, you see the connection here to Jesus' example of human incarnational submission to the Father's will. And this should shape and form our obedience to Christ and to the Father. Now notice how this is phrased here, okay? If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Now, that's almost the exact opposite of chapter 14 and verse 15. Look there with me. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Right? It's, it's almost the opposite of what we have here in chapter 15. So, which comes first? 
Is it obeying his commandments and then entering into his love and abiding in his love? Or is it the love that causes us to keep his commandments? Yes. It's both and. Now keep in mind here, as you think about verse 10, this whole passage, the whole context of this is in a real relationship. It's not some procedure or or some mechanical operation where you have to get things in the right order. And they always work in this order. And that's why I think you have both of these verses so close together, 14.15 and 15.10. Because it's like, it's a circle and it all happens at the same time and works together. Does our love motivate our obedience? Yes, absolutely. Does our obedience keep us in the love of God and keep us aware of Christ's love for us? Yes. And as those who are loved by him, we have a responsibility to obey. And that responsibility is real. And it's what we'll want anyway if we're aware of his love. Now, look back at verse 10 with me. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Jesus is not saying here that if you mess up one time, you are cut off now from God's love for you. That is not what he's saying. But he is saying that in a relationship, right, not a mechanical operation or procedure, but in a relationship, the experience of and the recognition of God's love for you can ebb and flow with your obedience. And he's saying that those who don't obey, as he said before, are not truly connected to the vine. But even in thinking about our obedience as something that should happen and does happen in those who are truly connected to the vine, and even thinking about the fact that you will fail this week and you will sin and you will mess up and you will turn away from him and lack trust and faith in him, even a part of this obedience is then, once you fail, recognizing that you have failed and turning back to him in repentance and faith. That's part of this as well. It's not like, oh, I messed up one time and it was a big one. Now I'm done. No, part of love for him and part of what keeps us aware of his love for us is going back to him and back to the work of Christ on the cross when we have messed up. And he has made provision for this. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. This sort of relationship that Jesus is describing is very much aware that you are a human being and you are sinful and you are going to fail. That's a part of this relationship. And it doesn't eliminate his love for you. But it also doesn't relieve you and I of the responsibility of obedience to his commands. 1 John, I think, spells this out for us. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. Little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. 
Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil, for the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. I think it couldn't be clear. And Jesus has been equally clear in this upper room discourse here as he's talked about the work of the Spirit and what's going to happen after he leaves. His disciples need to stay obedient to his commands. There is an expectation here that those who follow him will obey him. The ongoing relationship of a disciple to his master is one of submission to his word and obedience to his commands. It's how we abide in the vine. It's part of the picture. And that brings us to our third practice here. Settle into Christ's love, obey his commands, and then maximize your joy. And we just talked about obedience. And here's the thing. Here's, let this reframe how you think about obedience to God's word, submission to his authority. It's never meant to be a life of drudgery and dreariness. This is not why he gives us these commands. In fact, Jesus would say the exact opposite. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. All the words of Jesus, specifically what he's spoken here in the upper room discourse and even more specifically what he's just said about obedience to his commands, but all of it is meant to produce joy in his disciples. That's the goal of it. And not just a little bit of joy for a moment or two, here or there, an occasional burst of joy. It's supposed to be, look at verse 11, Christ's joy, that his joy would be in you, and he wants us to have that joy to the maximum level, and that your joy may be full. So, He says he wants his joy to be in them. Let's think about Christ's joy for a moment. You probably don't often think of Jesus as a very joyful person, but that's exactly who he is. And he has carried that joy into his incarnation from his relationship with the Father for all eternity, a relationship of love and of delight and of joy. The Bible speaks of Jesus as having a real and a deep joy. Listen to Hebrews chapter 12. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Jesus was able to endure suffering because of the joy that was in front of him. So this tells us a number of things, but one specifically, when you think about joy and producing joy in your own heart and your own life, joy comes from a proper perspective. That's exactly what Jesus had here. The joy came because even despite what he was going through, the shame, the physical suffering, the whole ordeal of the cross, even despite that, he was able to look through that and see reality as it really is. He was able to see what was coming and that gave him endurance and it brought joy to him. And that's exactly what Jesus is giving his disciples in these chapters, right? Verse 11 again. These things have I spoken to you. What is Jesus doing in his word? He is framing their perspective of reality. He's telling them how things are. He's giving them the truth. He's telling them about the future, about the spirit. He is giving them a right perspective of reality. And when they accept what he says here as true, and they live into that, His joy will be in them, and their joy will be full. It will be maximized, and nothing can take that joy away. So what does this mean for you and for me? Real, deep joy is not only possible for you, but it's right there. It's accessible, and it's accessible to you through the words of Jesus. It's accessible to you as you begin to take on his perspective of reality. And you begin to live into that and live and think as if it were true. To to abide in the vine, this is a how-to, right? To abide in the vine, you maximize your joy by leaning into Christ's words and his perspective. And let it be reshaped, your perspective, to match the Lord Jesus Christ's. Lastly, this morning, the last practice, love one another. So we settle into Christ's love, we obey his commands, we maximize our joy, and we love one another. So Jesus just mentioned in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. So he's talked about keeping his commandments, and now in verses 12 to 17, he spells out a rather significant one of his commandments. Look at verse 12. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And he's already mentioned this. If you look back in chapter 13 in verse 34, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, verse 35, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now this command, back over in chapter 15, verse 12, you see it there. Now look down to verse 17. These things I command you so that you will love one another. And so you got verse 12, and you got verse 17, and those are sort of your bookends here. They're the, the pieces of bread, and the meat is in the middle of this sandwich of loving one another. And so what comes in the middle? Everything that's in the middle of this is meant to help you work out this and live out this command to love one another. 
How so? Well, verses 13 through 16 tell us two things. First of all, they tell us what Christ's love for us looks like. Okay? So, for example, look at verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. So they tell us what Christ's love for us looks like, and then as you begin to see what his love for you looks like, it motivates you to then live that out in love for one another. You can see right in verse 12, look there again. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. You start with his love, and then in two ways that motivates you to love others. By example... And by seeing his love for you and realizing it's true and it changes your heart and motivates you to love others. So verse 13, as I already mentioned, explains that love to us through the sacrifice of Christ. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. We've already seen Jesus talk about self-sacrifice, serving others as the essence of love and of how we should relate to one another. Back in John chapter 13, when he washes the disciples' feet, he talks about this. Verse 14 of John 13. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. So Jesus serves others and he says to us, look, follow my example in this. 1 John 3.16, by this we know, love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. So there's a clear connection here in these verses between sacrificial love and laying down your life for others. This is what Christ modeled for us. Now let's bring this into our lives today. Most of you are probably not going to be put in a position this coming week where you have to actually die on behalf of someone else. I hope that does not happen to you this coming week. Most of us will not at any time in our lives be put in that position where we have to choose between showing love to someone and keeping our lives. And I don't want to ask you this morning if you're willing to do that because it's really easy in a room like this to say, well, yeah, sure. And let's be honest, there are certain people you would do that for and certain others you wouldn't. But in order to properly apply this to our lives, let's get real specific with how this works itself out in your life this week. This sacrificial giving up of yourself and of your life for others. I think we need to ask ourselves if we regularly sacrifice our time, our energy, our resources, our attention what we spend our time giving our eyeballs to and our attention to for the good of others. Because all of those things are what make up your life, right? It's not just your physical life between life and death. It's the way you spend your time, your energy, your resources, and your attention that makes up your life. And so I'm asking if you use those gifts from God that have been given to you to serve sacrificially other people. To abide in the vine requires careful attention to the ways in which you are living out sacrificial love for others. 
Notice here back in verse 13, Jesus says that he gives his life for his friends. This, I think, also helps us to understand the way Christ views us and his love for us. He calls them friends here because his relationship with them has changed now. It's changed as he explains in verses 14 and 15. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. So Christ's love for us is displayed by his revelation of God's purposes to us. He demonstrates his love for us by telling us what the Father is going to do, the plans of God. He brings us in on all of this. And that's what he's doing with his disciples here. And that new status as a friend of God is not something that in Christ's love you and I have earned. We didn't bring this about on our own because of our smarts and our good decision-making. Look at verse 16. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. We have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world in order to produce fruit through this relationship that we have with him. One author summarized this whole section this way, and I thought this was really helpful, especially the last line of this. In the flow of thought of verses 12 to 17, it would appear that the statements Jesus has made concerning how they are to love as he is loved, how he loves, how they are his friends, and how he chose them to bear fruit have all been made, notice this, to free the disciples to love one another. That last line is very helpful. And this is what Jesus is doing here, especially in verses 13 to 16. The disciples are now free to love one another. Why? Because they can be confident in Christ's love for them. Because he's given up his life for them. Because he's made them his friends, made you his friend, has revealed to you the plans of the Father, has chosen you to be in him before the foundation of the world. All of that expresses Christ's love for you, and all of that should give you confidence in his love, and that confidence now frees you up. You don't have to earn anything. It's there. You can rest in his love for you. And now, because you're confident of his love for you, you can go out and spend your life in sacrificial service of others. To truly live in a loving and sacrificial way requires that you rest in Christ's love, that you're confident in his love, that you have a home in heaven, you know where you're going. And it requires that you understand this life is not all you get. Because when you think this life is all I get, it's just these few years, it's these resources, it's this time, it's my time, it's my money, it's my attention. When you think that way and that begins to become the controlling narrative of your heart, you're not going to sacrifice for others at all. 
You're going to use everything you have for you because that's who it's all about. But when you're confident in Christ's love for you, when you're confident in the home in heaven that you have with him, the relationship that you have with him, the gifts that he has given to you, man, now you can use your life and spend it in loving others sacrificially. That's what he's telling us here in verses 12 through 17. So, bringing this all the way back to this whole passage, these practices, these how-tos regarding God's love for us, Christ's love for us, obedience to his commands, abiding in the vine, all of this. Let these practices guide you as you seek to abide. We, I think if you were to ask anyone who's a follower of Christ in here, do you want to abide? Do you want to stay connected to him? I think we would all say, absolutely. I want my relationship with him to be rich and full, full of joy. And that's exactly what he's telling us here, how to do. The fruit that is produced in our lives, as we talked about earlier, is, is two things simultaneously. It's amazing. I mean, think about the reality that happens. Just like that sunlight and the water produce an apple on a tree that has that sweet taste to it. Think about what has happened in your life. You now, someone who was born into sin, in rebellion against God, on your way to an eternity without him in hell, you have been transformed by his grace, have been changed by his love. You are the object of his love. And now he loves you to the point of producing fruit that is good and is beautiful in your life. That is a shocking reality. And at the same time, this is just what God does. It's like an apple tree. Fruit comes out. It's the most natural thing in the world that when you see Christ's love for you, that fruit begins to pop out in abundance. But that fruit will only happen as you are connected to the vine through his love, your obedience, his joy, and our sacrificial love for others. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would just land this passage into our hearts. I pray that we would remember these practices this coming week, that we would remember your love for us, the possibility of joy, that we would be motivated to love others and to obey you, and that all of this would begin more and more to produce the fruit of the Spirit in us, that we would be changed people because of the relationship that we now have with you. I pray that the the production of this fruit would become the most natural thing in the world for us here at Woodhaven Bible Church, and at the same time that it would be the most amazing thing in the world, that you have taken people who are born into darkness and you've given us the light and transformed our hearts and changed us to honor you with the way that we live. We thank you for this opportunity. Holy Spirit, do your work in us now. Confirm these words, press them into our hearts, change our affections and our perspective. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.